Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. In her new book, A History of America in 100 Maps, historian Susan Shulton uses maps to explore five centuries of American history, from the voyages of European discovery to the digital age. Shulton's visual tour of American history considers the different purposes for which maps are created. Maps as tools of statecraft and diplomacy, maps meant to amuse and entertain, and maps made as instruments of social reform. Some of the maps she discusses document journeys, others strategize for war. Some trace the spread of disease, others the pathways of rivers or the decline of endangered species. Some are produced by trained cartographers, others by amateurs, one by a young schoolgirl. Together, they offer a compelling and at times quite beautiful case for the power of maps to shape our world and the ways we navigate through it. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Susan Shelton about her 2018 book, A History of America in 100 Maps. Dr. Shelton, welcome to the show. Good morning, Carrie. So I am so excited to talk with you about this book, which I really enjoyed reading. But before we we talk about the book itself, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm a history professor at the University of Denver. I've been here a long time, since 1996. And Because we're a small department, I teach a lot of different things, um, but especially 19th and 20th century America. So your book captivated me from the start. Um, I'm not a scholar of maps, but I was immediately drawn in by these varied maps and your discussions of them. So how did you come up with the idea for this book? Well, I've been interested in maps for a very long time. It started when I was a graduate student, and I was writing a dissertation about how Americans were taught to see the world as the United States became an international power uh, from 1880 to about 1950. And maps formed a portion of that. I looked at the evolution of school atlases, National Geographic maps, Rand McNally, things like that. And since then, I've become more and more interested in the way maps represent what people knew at a particular time and in a particular place. Um, My first two books looked deeply at maps, but more recently, to answer your question, in 2015, I got a call from an editor at the British Library. The British Library, if you don't know, has one of the largest collections of cartographic material related to North America in the world. And people are always a little bit surprised by that. But when you consider the long imperial history of North America, it begins to make sense. And this editor, knowing what the British Library had or knowing that it had substantial material and unique material, asked if I might be interested in organizing a book that looked at American history through maps. In other words, maps wouldn't be just supporting illustrations, but maps would be the main event and the focus And I jumped at the opportunity in part because he made it clear that this would be a chance to publish in color. And for those of us who work with visual material, the chance to work in color is really rare and and seductive. (laughs) Um, 
So that's how it started. I said yes, but then the much harder part became figuring out what a history of America through maps looked like that didn't just evolve into one thing after another. Well, I mean, I had real trouble narrowing down which maps I was going to ask you about for this interview because there were so many interesting options to choose from. So how in the world did you decide which maps you were going to include in the book? Well, that was a tough one. No sooner had I accepted the invitation than I realized that the big question was, what would hold this together? And after a lot of reflection and talking to some colleagues, I realized that one thing you could do would be to make the through line maps that mattered somehow. And that doesn't necessarily mean just maps of statesmen and diplomacy, conflict and war, but it means maps that can show us something that we wouldn't otherwise know about that time and place. And so when I turned to try to choose the maps, I first realized that there were some that just jumped out. For instance, and we can talk about this one later if you'd like, but the 1718 map made by the geographer to the French king, that achieves two things. The French king first wanted the most accurate map of North America that could be made. And so he wanted a cutting edge map of information and precision. But just as important was the second thing he asked his geographer to create, which was a map that would maximize French claims to sovereignty in North America, a map that would privilege French claims over Spanish to the West and British to the East. So that map achieved two things at once. It was both a document of what people knew at that time and also what they thought they knew, but also a map that was designed to persuade. And it's that axis. A map is something that both reflects knowledge, but also shapes knowledge, shapes history. So all through, I tried to find maps that achieved that. Having said that, to your point, toward the end, it was a lot of very hard choices, a lot of things left on the editing floor. And what it came down to were, when I had the best maps, how also could I achieve coverage of geography, of themes, of chronology, right? And so things that would be representative and try to tell different stories about American history. And your map includes map, your book includes maps from 1489 to 2018. So that's a lot of historical ground to cover. And once you'd chosen the maps, I mean, each of these sections sort of reads like its own mini histories. I, I thought the book was written in a very accessible way so that people who aren't necessarily historians or students of history could still understand the context for each of these maps. But to, to my mind, that means you wrote almost a hundred little mini histories. So once you'd chosen your maps, how did you go about researching the history you needed to make sense of, of each map and its significance? That was a tough one because as, as I said earlier, I'm primarily a historian of 19th and 20th century America. So this was a real stretch for me. I really didn't know a lot about the imperial era, uh, about the era of exploration, about early indigenous history. So I did a couple of things. One is I read some big picture overviews, right? Thank God for textbooks that can help us wade into areas we don't know about. But then I started to do a lot of research on pivotal moments, but also, and this is the much more practical thing that enters, looking for maps that were important and significant, but also would reproduce well in this kind of format. There were lots of maps that were enormous 
which meant that they wouldn't reproduce well and a reader wouldn't be able to follow the story. If you have a map where the details are lost, then in that sense, it's sort of a failure. So I really tried to choose over and over again maps that would be legible, persuasive in some ways that I could say this is what the author was trying to convey. Um, To your other question of how do you prepare something like that, if you can settle on the artifacts, then you can build out a history from those maps. And so in that sense, I felt a little bit like stick to the maps. That is to say, let the map drive the history. The editor also encouraged me to think about reaching much beyond audiences that I had written for in my prior monographs. He said, realize that people are going to page through a book like this and look for a map that catches their eye. In other words, most people won't read the book from beginning to end like a narrative, but rather they'll dip in and out. And so each essay had to stand alone. But at the same time, the nine chapters had to have some coherence and some argument and through line. Well, what did the writing process look like for this book? Well, (laughs) I tried to do it chronologically, which I know is not always the way we work. We sometimes begin with material we're most comfortable with. I tried to do it chronologically in order to build my own sense of the evolution of North America, because I really was learning alongside this project. Um, The writing process, uh, boy, uh, I tried to tackle an essay every week or few days. Um, Toward the end, it got a little bit more rapid because I was on a deadline. Uh, This was a book that had to be in at a certain time. But I would look at the map, go out and see who had written about it. Sometimes nobody had written about it. Other maps, I tried to limit these, but other maps are famous in the map world. And then to try to balance map knowledge or map history with the larger story. As a historian who's interested in maps, I can tell you that there's a lot written about maps, but sometimes it is so internal to the map itself. In other words, map historians sometimes have a reputation of being caught up in who did the engraving or who copied whom. That's not what this book is about. This book is about what maps can tell us about American history that other documents can't. And so for each of those artifacts, like I said, I tried to stick to the map. But I tried to look at it with fresh eyes. In some cases, it was the first time I had seen the map. And I thought, what would a reader, where would their eye go? What would they want to know? And of course, with each essay being under a thousand words, there was a lot that had to be left out. That's a tough thing about writing a book like this. You know, with with monographs, you and I are encouraged to go deep, right, to follow the evidence. You can do that a little bit with this book, but you're also reminded constantly that you're writing for an audience that may not want to go (laughs) as deep as far as you do. So it was a constant balance in that sense. Well, and so we can picture it. Where do you like to do your writing? In an office, at home, some combination, somewhere else? For this one, I really tried to avoid my work. Uh, I had a year to finish it. I was very fortunate with some funding. And to be honest, I work well at home if I've done the research and have it with me. Uh, Of course, for a lot of this stuff, I had to do the groundwork in the British Library, in the Library of Congress, in other archives. But in terms of writing, to your question, um, to be honest, I work at my dining table. 
you know, after the kids have gone to school and my husband's out, that's where I can find quiet. And I sometimes even when I'm really facing a, a sticky problem and I can't figure out how to organize my thoughts, I often go back to paper and pen. There's something about that tactile experience that's helpful to me. I'm also old, so <laughs> that might be why. But then once I've gotten those ideas sorted out on paper, I then go and begin to transcribe them um, through a laptop. So, well, let's turn to the book itself now. Um, in your introduction, you write that what follows is, and I'm quoting you, a visual tour of American history through maps. So how does a history told through maps add to or, or reshape our understanding of American history? Well, in that regard, I was really struck when I was in graduate school and started to gravitate toward maps. I thought it was a really cool idea. It was visual. It was something I hadn't thought about. My advisors, advisors were incredibly supportive. But I was struck that many of my peers and colleagues after I became a professor were just not that visual. Uh, and I was really interested in that. Um, why is it that historians, and you're an American studies professor, so you might be sensitive to this, but historians, less so now, but for a long time, really privileged print and text. And for me, a visual tour was a way to shake that up a little bit. A lot of the maps that I have shown will reinforce what we already know. In other words, it's not going to upend American history, but it's also going to remind people that our predecessors in the past were constantly working with visual pictures of their surroundings, some of which were deeply flawed, some of which were highly argumentative. But it's that visual surrounding that I love reminding myself of, that people were navigating their world with partial information. And that's really alluring to me um, when I try to think about what people knew but also what they thought they knew. Definitely. And, and I find that tension really interesting in there, that the maps are documenting, but they're also, they're also teaching and they're re revealing something new, even about things we think we already know. Um, and so when you, when you organize the book, as you mentioned, you organized it into nine historical eras. And the first of these, Contact and Discovery, spans from 1490 to 1600. So one of the defining aspects of this section to, to me is how nascent and fluid geographical knowledge of the Western Hemisphere was during much of this time span. So could you speak about that a bit? Yes, I tried to find a kind of unifying idea for that first century. And what I loved, and many of those unique items, rare, uh, were from the British Library itself. Um, those, if you see them in succession, they reveal a kind of um, continent that is slowly coming into focus. What's most fascinating to me, and I actually hadn't really appreciated this as a historian before working on this book, was the utter confusion about whether what was to the west of Europe was Asia or an entirely new landmass altogether. And so in that first, let's say, three or four decades from Columbus forward, the maps are really trying to fudge that. They don't know. And so many of them are actually trying to make sense of arguments from one camp or another. And so in some ways you see the islands of Hispaniola represented as Japan. 
And that really struck me that there was this enormous moment of discovery by Europeans of what was, of course, already there. <laughs> but even in that moment of discovery, how long it took for them to really figure out what they were grappling with. And that became sort of the unified theme for the first chapter. Well, and I think as you flip around between the maps in that section, you see this interesting claim being made. We, we don't know exactly what's out there, but we know that it's ours and not yours. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, yes, that's, an, that's very nicely put. That is to say, everyone is thrown back on their heels, right? Everyone is working with partial knowledge, secret knowledge, knowledge that's secreted away from one camp to another. But at the same time, even with that partial information, they're all have they all have an eye on what the others are claiming. And of course, that continues not just in the earliest years of discovery, but well into the 18th century, um, that this is a story of imperial claims. Well, and do you have any particular favorite map or maps in this section? Well, the one that I open with, I'm really taken by, and in part, maybe that's because it's in color. And of course, in that first map from 1489, 1490, the Western Hemisphere doesn't even appear. In other words, it's a Ptolemaic map. It's a map that in some ways is very old. It's from the classical period. It's based on Claudius Ptolemy's knowledge and maps of the early classical period that the world is made up of Africa, Europe, and Asia. And so in that sense, it's a very traditional map. But if you look closely at the coastline of Africa, you can see that it is incorporating knowledge that had just been brought back the year before in 1488 by Bartolome Diaz. And so it's that combination of traditional and cutting edge that's in the map. The other reason it's in the book, of course, is that even though the Western Hemisphere doesn't appear, I included it because that is the knowledge and the understanding that begins to shape decision-making of explorers like Columbus. Of course, he's not the only one, but the argument being that we're better off trying to get to the Orient by sailing west than by sailing south around Africa. And so that map to me is beautiful because on the one hand, it's cutting edge. On the other hand, it prompts a discovery that will forever render it irrelevant and historical. It's the last map of its kind, if you will, that doesn't include a larger and more complicated world. I like that. I like that way of thinking about it as the last map of its kind. Um, the, the book's second section spans the 17th century. And you note that these maps demonstrate the, the tenuous nature of early North American colonization. How so? Well, the unifying idea for that chapter, and again, this was an education for me, but was the ongoing search for a Northwest Passage, which simply means that the, the Dutch, the British, the Spanish, the French, they weren't so interested in this new landmass as much as they were interested in getting across it to somewhere else. I find that utterly fascinating, right? That is to say, we consider in our own sort of, um, uh, I guess, selfish understanding of our own history that the discovery of North America was a discovery in and of itself. But for much of that period, they were really trying to understand the rivers, for instance, in order to understand how quickly they could traverse the continent and get to the other side. So that became the unifying theme. 
what I meant by the tenuous nature was that um, when you see the earliest maps of colonial settlement, for instance, or the overturning of Dutch power by British power in that map of um, New Amsterdam or New York, you realize that from decade to decade, sometimes from year to year, supposed claims of ownership and sovereignty are overturned. Now, what's even more central here, and one that was a really tough thing for me to convey through maps, was just how powerful the indigenous presence was. And when I say it was tough, in part it's tough because it's hard to find written records, maps, if you will, or any kind of uh, document uh, representing geographic knowledge from a native perspective only. And so you have to be creative in that sense. Um, And what that chapter does, as well as the subsequent chapter, is to remind us that in this early period, power was incredibly fluid and Native Americans formed an extraordinary um, uh, source of um, control, alliance, opposition, but not just something that, if you will, was swept off the land. Sometimes I think my own education, and here I'm speaking of my early education, position Native Americans as a kind of um, force that would inevitably be overcome. But what I love about these early centuries is that we can restore a sense of um, real power and fluidity to those relationships. Well, and you know, to that, let's talk about John Smith's beautiful maps of Virginia and New England that you include. They're from 1612 and 1616, respectively. Smith is, I mean, he is such a rascal, but I do, (laughs) I love his maps. These maps are beautiful. They are beautiful. And he, uh, a rascal is right. A salesman is right. A very good explorer, a very good map, map maker. All these things are true, right? People are complicated. Uh, I'm particularly um, drawn to his map of Virginia in part for the dual claims he's making. On the one hand, you see all kinds of signals of British power right on the map that uh, it makes it look much more settled than it actually is. It makes it look much more stable. But he's also very clear if you look closely, and I know it's difficult, but he acknowledges the areas around which he's relying on native intelligence and native knowledge. In other words, it's a fairly um, honest, in some ways, acknowledgement that the British actually know very little outside of what they're being told um, by tribes in the Southeast. Uh, The one aspect I love, and I'm sure this came through in the essay of the map of New England, is that in other words, in in some ways, it's it's an early real estate promotion, right? That he really is (laughs) trying to draw people to an area that uh, not as it's shown on the map, <laughs> actually, but is extremely unstable. Um, and that really is controlled by the tribes of that region. Well, and uh, another riveting map that I wanted to talk about from this section is it's a, a beautiful and, and also terrible map of, of West Africa mm. um, from around 1650. So why did you choose to include this map in a book on American history? You know, I really struggled with that. Um, In part, in the early centuries, and I did a lot of homework here, and maybe I just didn't find it, I couldn't really discover maps that would reveal something about how fundamental slavery was as it grew as an agricultural force in North America. And so I pivoted 
to t- not just one, but two maps of Africa, one in this section and one in the 18th century when the trade is really at its height, to try to demonstrate that to tell the history of North America, you really have to tell the history of the wider world. The map that I settled on is beautiful. It's colorful. And so in some ways I was making a practical decision. It reproduced well. It showed the early uh, foothold, if you will, of the slave trade uh, in West Africa. Um, And that was also to me a proper and sober reminder that the the success, the survival of the colonies really did depend on imported labor. Uh, This is, of course, not original to me. Here I owe um, insights to other historians who've done this work, but slavery was not incidental, if you will, right? And we know, of course, it was more important in the Caribbean and more important in South America, but I didn't want to underestimate its power. And so I thought it was sort of a creative solution to the lack of maps of slavery in the early colonies to show a map of the origins of those slaves. And that uh, that map that I showed indicates where all the most important ports of departure were in West Africa. And that to me is very powerful. Well, and I think it also, to, to speak to your earlier point about the way we tend to be taught early American history, right, is that Native Americans come first and then they're gone from American history. Although, of course, we still have a Native American presence in the United States today, but but we're taught sort of, okay, first it's Native Americans. Then when we get to the 1800s, we learn about enslaved Americans. And I like that that putting these maps sort of in conversation with one another remind us, and, and I always remind my students, Pocahontas and the first enslaved Africans brought to the to what later became the United States, they're there at the same time, right? These histories can't be separated out into this is the time of Native America and this is the time of slavery. It is all interdependent and the story wouldn't have gone as it did if it weren't for that fact. And, and, and so I like that these maps remind us of that. And also, as you mentioned, right, that, that we have always been part of a globalized world. Globalization, it isn't new. Um, it's as, as early as the discovery of the new world is itself. Yes. I think that's, that's well said that, um, we tend to think maybe not so much anymore, but, uh, in earlier decades of this century, I think slavery was introduced as kind of, or taught as something of an aberration, um, an error, um, of course, an error it is certainly, but to say that it was not central, I think is the thing I wanted to correct a little bit. Um, to your other point, the maps of Africa were also, because they were early, they also reminded me that there would be other opportunities to include maps of areas outside of North America. So for instance, there's Cortez's map of Mexico City, which I realize is part of Mexico and North America, but outside of the United States proper. In the later eras, there's a map of uh, the Panama Canal. In the late 20th century, there's a map of Vietnam, uh, Cuba for the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that to me was a healthy turn. I didn't want to do too much of that, of course, but I thought those would be unexpected inclusions that would help remind Americans that they are part of a long and meshed history and that the world made America. Well, and, and also in this section, when, when you're discussing Hubbard and Foster's 
1677 map of New England, you write that the first map made in America was a map of war. And when we think about the way Americans like to think about themselves and their nation, and that, that seems incredibly significant. So can you tell us what this map was and, and what you think we can learn from it? Yeah, and that one was really a revelation to me. I knew it was an important map among map people. Um, it, and here's another example of what I was talking about earlier. People who are interested in the history of maps tend to pay attention to that one because it's the first that is cut and printed in North America. To me, that's something that's important, but far more alluring is what it can tell us about what was happening on the ground in that war. Um, That's uh, a map of terror, uh, a map of tremendous violence on both sides. Um, You have to, of course, be led into that. In other words, if I didn't know the backstory of that map, and if you just look at it and read the cartouche, you see a little bit that it's about King Philip's War, but you don't have a full sense of how tenuous the Massachusetts Bay Colony really is at that moment and the deep, unsettled nature and conflict as the colony pushed further and further west, right, and how that resulted in an explosion of violence. So I think you're right. There is something very symbolically important about the first map cut in North America being a map of war, right? Um, There's something ominous, but also revealing and accurate about that in terms of representing the 17th century. Well, and and one of the things I love that you do in the book is to include maps that we wouldn't always think of as maps. They don't necessarily look like the kinds of maps we're, we're used to seeing. And in the book's third section, Imperialism and Independence, you cover the time period from 1700 to 1733. And in this section, I was especially struck by the Native American map you include from around 1721 that's depicting the deerskin trade, because it it doesn't look like what we necessarily expect a map to look like. And I wondered if you could describe it a bit for our listeners. Yes, that one is a, a perennial favorite, not just of mine, but when I speak about the book, that map always comes up. What you're looking at is uh, a map that was copied from an original that was on deerskin. And so what you're looking at is a series of circles, some connected, some not. And then outlying those are some right angles that represent the colony of South Carolina and the colony of Virginia. My student once remarked, this looks like a confusing organizational chart. Right. In other words, like you said, it doesn't look like a map because it doesn't depict space in strict physical terms. It is a map that was given to the governor of South Carolina at the conclusion of the Yamasi War in the 17 teens. That conflict devastated the deerskin trade. It was a conflict between the various tribes of the Southeast and the colony the very, very young colony of South Carolina. It devastated the deerskin trade, it devastated those tribes, and it nearly wiped South Carolina off the map. At the conclusion of the war, Governor Nicholson was given instructions, very clear instructions, to reach out to those tribes and to restore that relationship for two reasons. One is those tribes were crucial buffers because the French were starting to move east from the Mississippi River. 
they were allies in that sense, that the tribes could form a kind of buffer. But secondly, there was the crucial goal of restoring the deerskin trade as a source of commerce because Charleston was vying to be the most important port on the lower Atlantic. And it had big competition in Virginia. And so the governor met with those tribes in order to restore that relationship. And he was at that meeting, given this map, we don't know everything about it, but it was drawn either by a Cherokee or a Chickasaw chief. And so if you can imagine those tribes being represented as circles, the circles are proportional to the tribe's power in the region. So some of the largest are the Nassau, the Chickasaw, and the Cherokee. And then there are various smaller tribes with smaller circles. Those circles are connected to other tribes or, in some cases, directly to the colonies. So the scholar who's done the best work on this has speculated that it was a Cherokee or Chickasaw chief who was presenting an opportunity, a diplomatic and trade opportunity to the governor of South Carolina by drawing a direct line connecting that tribe to the colony of South Carolina. And what that meant was the proposal of an exclusive trade arrangement that would benefit the colony of South Carolina against Virginia and would also benefit those two tribes against the interests of the other tribes. In other words, as the deerskin trade was being built up, there's a kind of zero-sum game here, right? Who's going to win and who's going to lose? And so we see this map as a kind of overture, right, or um, diplomatic proposal. Like I said, we don't know everything about it, but that's the best argument um, that to me has been made about the significance of the map. Um, there are a couple things I love about it. One is that it, like I said earlier, it restores contingency. We don't think necessarily, those of us who are later historians or lay people, we don't think about the tribes of uh, the Southeast, especially as having power in terms of negotiating against the early British colonies. But of course they did. So it restores a sense that things uh, weren't always what we know them to be later. The other thing I like about it is that it represents really the last moment of the deerskin trade. This is a period when South Carolina is looking northward and seeing that the real future is not in this kind of trade, but in agriculture. And it pivots in the 1720s and 1730s toward rice. And rice, of course, involves enslaved labor. So partly what you're looking at here is a map that uh, is a prelude to the real mother load for South Carolina, which is the introduction of rice and slavery. Well, and speaking of moments when it wasn't clear in what direction the country was headed, right? Many of the maps in this section were created um, in connection with the Revolutionary War. So what do these different depictions tell us about that war? Well, you know, that that introduced a question, right? There are, are iconic moments in American history, and I knew readers would be expecting to see maps connected to those, right? Of course, the Revolutionary War being one of them. But I also wanted to use maps that might be a little bit surprising to them. So for instance, I have a map of 1778 uh, of the Southeast, uh, pardon me, I have a map of 1778 of the Southwest, which shows that 
at precisely the time that uh, the colonists are fighting for their independence, or some of them are, um, in the far Southwest, you have Spain really trying to make sense of the geography of the greater Southwest, right? That those two things are happening at the same time when our understanding is usually riveted on what's happening um, along the Atlantic seaboard and with the Revolutionary War. So for the maps that are related to the War of Independence, I tried to include uh, one of the first maps, really, um, which was the shot heard around the world. So the map uh, that records the skirmishes outside of Boston. And then also the last map of the war uh, at Yorktown, where the British laid down their arms, uh, very much thanks to the 11th hour aid from the French, um, which helped to defeat the British um, on the Virginia Peninsula. The one after that is really extraordinary. Um, the map that was used to draw the boundaries of the new United States of America. And the copy that the British Library holds, not surprisingly, <laughs> was the copy that was given to King George. Um, so it is a record of British loss, if you will. Um, and I think that's such an interesting uh, record that we have of the birth of a new nation. Well, and, and the, the book's next section sort of documents that nation as it's growing, right? It straddles the 18th and 19th century America, and it's got a, a rich array of maps in there. But I wondered if you could talk a bit about the 1796 map of post roads. Oh, yes, that's an old favorite of mine. That's a map I've I've long had sort of a um, special place in my heart for. It was made by Abraham Bradley, who was a clerk in the post office. And if you can think about the 1790s, uh, it might not surprise you that the post office was one of the earliest and most important federal agencies buzzing with activity. But think about the way that the post office was, was responsible, not just for delivering mail, but as that early federal agency, it was really trying to knit together a nation that was enormous, physically speaking, if you include the early frontier. And the task before them of creating a kind of nerve system, right, that would connect all of these disparate peoples. Where do you put post offices? How do you not just privilege the seaboard, which is, of course, the easiest place to sail up and down and deliver mail? What does a communication network look like? And so Bradley in the 1790s, tries to create the first map of the entire postal system, which is also one of the first maps of the entire United States of America. And pretty quickly, he can't do that. In other words, 20 years later, it's hard to create a map that includes every one of those postal offices and depots. But the effort to me is so fascinating. And if you look closely, the lower right is his attempt to create a kind of infographic that shows how mail actually travels from the northernmost reaches of Maine down to the southernmost reaches of the United States, which was then Georgia. And I love that effort to try to collapse and integrate time and space by showing how information moves. Um, that to me was the real genius and insight and brilliance of the Bradley map. The last thing I love about it is that if you pay attention in close up of, to that map and you can see where those postal routes and offices are, 
you can extrapolate a little bit about the density if, of the colonies, I'm sorry, the early United States at that period. In other words, by looking at the network and looking how close some of those post offices are, you can see where the settlement is. Well, and one of the things that I learned from your book that I hadn't known before was that map making was a task that was assigned to American schoolgirls. Um, and that 1818 map you include um, of the United States that's by a schoolgirl named Catherine Cook. It's one of my favorites in the book. So could you describe it for our listeners and, and talk about why you included it? Absolutely. This is a, a genre that's very dear to my heart. I've done a lot of research in this area. After American independence, there was a sea change and a shift in thinking about the education of young women. Independence put a premium on uh, the responsibility of women um, to be educated in a way that would enable them to educate their own children as future citizens. The long and the short of that is that after 1790, it becomes much more acceptable socially and even urgent to educate young girls outside of the home. And so what you see from 1790 forward is an explosion of educational institutions for female students. Sometimes these are homeschools, right, that, that educate uh, maybe 20 students. Others are much more established where students board. The point is that hundreds, if not thousands, of schools are founded and newspapers of this era are just littered with advertisements of um, Jane Smith is going to open a school for young ladies, and here's what she's going to teach. Over and over again in those young schools, those early schools for girls, you see a certain kind of curriculum emerging. Uh, girls, to the extent that they were educated, had long been exposed to ornamental arts, which include things like French and painting, needlework. But alongside that, you had also some traditional subjects that were considered appropriate for women, like geography, which was a science that was not too threatening, certainly something that would prepare a young woman to understand a little bit about the world, to be a good conversationalist. Geography was also essential after the revolution as a way for young people to understand their country. In other words, it had a deeply civic kind of purpose. And so when you see those schools over and over in the curriculum and the advertisements, but also when I started to look in archives, you would find hundreds of maps made by these young girls. Some of them, like the one that I've included in this book, which is fairly typical, are incredibly exacting and artistic. And so what you can see is that in drawing maps, these girls were being taught art, penmanship self-discipline, and also a little bit about geography. They're not being taught surveying, mind you, right? They're not being taken outside and taught how to create a map from the ground up. Much more important in these exercises was that there was a kind of polite understanding of geography and certainly an appreciation of the artistic dimension of maps. So I've looked at hundreds of these. Um, I find them absolutely intoxicating. For a long time, um, they were prized in families. Um, they were, you can see in some of them that they were exhibited for competitions. They were put up in homes. That is to say, families were very proud of these. 
And because they've been preserved, right, when you look at them in the aggregate, you can begin to get a glimpse of how that first generation of girls educated outside the home were spending their days. And that to me is something that otherwise is really hard to access. We have textbooks, we have ideas of what teachers want to teach, but to actually see the artifacts of these young women as they're being educated and how they're being educated is compelling to me. Well, in the book's next section, which you titled uh, Expansion, Fragmentation, and Reunification, you talk a lot about the Civil War, not surprisingly, during the time period. But before we, we speak about the maps that connect to the Civil War, I wondered if you could talk about the 1838 Temperance Map by Reverend John Christian Wilberger. Oh, that one is such a um, a joy to me. It is uh, one of the few maps in this book that are fictional. Now, of course, all maps in some ways are fictional. But what I mean by that is this one is entirely a work of imagination. It's not that atypical. Over time, uh, reaching back um, centuries early, there have been um, maps for morals, you know, maps of marriage, maps of the heart. And so it's not a new genre, but what you're looking at here is a map that was designed to advance one of the most important social movements of the antebellum era, which was opposition to alcohol. One of the most successful social reforms of the 19th century, right? This was a, this was a movement that um, really did convert a large swath of the population to abstain in that sense, it was successful. Um, and so the map uh, designated a temperance map was made by a minister, Wiltberger. And what he's done is to show a map that looks real. And rather than populate it with the landscape around you, he has populated it by a landscape of temptation. He's trying to show, and this took me a while to realize, <laughs> that the biggest lie at the time was that one could drink in moderation. And this was very um, popular with abstinence advocates. They worried about those who said that a little bit of alcohol is okay. And so they tried over and over in their print culture and in their sermons to demonstrate that it was the belief that one could drink in moderation that would quite often lead to um, excess and to sin. And so if you look at the map that Wiltberger has created from left to right, and that's how you're supposed to traverse the map, you see all these ways to get into the interior from an ocean to land, and they are things that are acceptable. Alcohol for medicinal purposes, alcohol as a social lubricant, right? Alcohol as a way to um, spread good cheer. But as you navigate those moderate uses of alcohol, you enter into an era, an area, pardon me, where it's much, much harder to get back on the right track, to get back into the land of enjoyment and prosperity and improvement. And instead, it's very easy to sail south, and I think that's significant, south is bad, <laughs> into, and to fall into false hopes and total indifference and false comfort and false security and financial ruin and moral ruin. So it's hard to describe over the um, over audio, but what you're looking at is a map that tries to demonstrate the perils of temptation 
and the need to really follow the straight and narrow if you're going to live a prosperous and moral life. Well, and another unexpected map that's included in this section is the close-up of a page from an 1837 Atlas for the Blind. And it's an incredibly beautiful image, just this close little view we get of the map. And I I wondered if you could tell me a bit about that map. I love that one. But to be honest, I really struggled as to whether to include it. As you describe, it's a map for the blind. So it's all... um, sensitive to touch. It is uh, raised relief, if you will. And this is prior to the advent of Braille. So this is an era uh, when there are multiple methods and languages out there, if you will, to communicate with the blind. And the one I chose was Samuel Gridley Howe. Um, He was a very, very important uh, social reformer out of Boston at a time when social reform was at its apex in Boston. And he was um, feeding his passion of uh, helping uh, blind children. So he founded a school. He founded an uh, an entire language um, uh, prior to Braille. It did not survive. It was um, not one that had enduring and staying power. But in the mid-19th century, it had quite a few adherents. And he was really passionate about geography. Uh, So one of the most popular genres of his press were geographical books and maps and atlases. When you think about it, an atlas sort of, or a map makes sense in terms of a way to communicate with the blind because you're representing space, right? It's a language. um, And if you can communicate that language uh, in the way um, that a sighted person can, right? It's not out of the question that a blind person would come to understand something about the geography, in this case, of Vermont and New Hampshire. So there are signs. Some things are intuitive, like mountain ranges as two parallel lines or rivers as a single raised line. Um, But I love the way in which he's tried to create intuitive, um, but also symbolic uh, tools and and, uh, languages, right, in order to open up the world of geography to the blind. Well, and and I definitely think if you were trying to decide whether or not to include that one, you made the right choice, (laughs) because I'm very glad um, that it's in there. And now, in this section, it's hard to choose just one map um, to think about the Civil War. But let's discuss, and and throughout this interview, I'm thinking, I just wish we could show the podcast (laughs) listeners perhaps some, um, you know, so just read along as you listen to the podcast. But you, you include the map showing the distribution of the slave population from 1861. And then you also include a painting of Abraham Lincoln that depicts that very map in the, the image that's painted in this painting of Lincoln. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this map and the choice to depict a depiction of the map as well. Yes. And this is a map that is uh, incredibly dear to my heart. It's a map I've been enamored with for 10 years. (laughs) Um, I had known about the map for some time. I just certainly didn't discover this map. Um, But I did a lot of research on it, uh, how it was printed. I was one of, uh, in collaboration with another scholar, a geographer, we figured out where it came from because that was really difficult to... um, to show in its early iterations because it was unsigned. 
we figured out it came out of the Coast Survey, which before the Civil War was the largest and most important federal scientific agency in the United States. And at the height of the sectional crisis, after several states have seceded from the Union and uh, right after um, uh, Lincoln has been inaugurated, the Coast Survey has, of course, an incredible charge, which is to map the coasts and the inland waterways. And so it's got enormous work to do to advance things like a blockade in the early part of the Civil War. And it was fascinating to me that one of the things they took the time to do in 1861 was to deploy a new technique of shading to represent the density of slavery across the United States. This map is preceded by one that focuses on Virginia. So that's the real prototype. And that one is produced and distributed right as Virginia and West Virginia are separating. In other words, once Virginia made the decision to leave the Union, the Western counties of Virginia, which had far lower slave population, if slaves at all, made good on their promise to leave West Virginia, um, pardon me, to leave Virginia and to be remain loyal to the Union. And so there's a map of Virginia that looks at the slave population in the same way that this one does for all of the Southern states. And it was a map designed for persuasion. It was a map designed to indicate what this war was really about. It's no surprise that the states that have the darkest representation, which indicates the highest ratio of slave to the total population, were the states that led secession. And we're talking about the Gulf states here, right? That this was a war about slavery. And that's what the Coast Survey was trying to show. The reason I included the large portrait made by Francis Bicknell Carpenter. And it's a portrait of Lincoln uh, informing his cabinet of the decision to issue an emancipation proclamation. That was something that was really important to me. Um, And if I've made any contribution to Lincoln scholarship, I was the scholar who discovered that the map in the lower right corner of that painting was the Coast Survey's map of the distribution of slavery. And the way I figured that out was actually not that hard. Francis Bicknell Carpenter, the portrait artist, left a memoir of his time in the White House. He spent six months in the White House preparing that portrait with Lincoln's blessing. And he left a memoir that told how he made the painting, what was going on in the White House in 1864 when he was living there and working. And he tells a wonderful story that in February of 1864, Lincoln over and over was noticed by Carpenter pouring over that slave map. Lincoln had access to thousands of maps. Most of them were topographical, right? They were maps of the landscape. This was one of the only maps he had that showed him the power of the Confederacy in a different way. The power of the Confederacy through its greatest resource, which was slavery. And so when Carpenter noticed Lincoln preoccupied with the map, one day he took it. He took it back to his art studio down the hall. And a few days later, Lincoln came in to check on the progress of the painting, which he often did. And he said, how is the painting going, Carpenter? And as Carpenter recounts it, before he could even answer, Lincoln noticed the map and said, ah, you have taken my map. I've been looking everywhere for it. And he describes Lincoln taking the map, going over to the window, putting on his glasses, and starting to talk to Carpenter about how 
the latest raid around Richmond will be affected and will affect slavery based on that map. In other words, Lincoln used the map in ways that are different from the way he used other maps. And so I've written extensively about this map in my last book, um, and I've published articles about it. I wrote a piece about it on the sesquicentennial of the Civil War for the Times because it's such a wonderful story about how people use information um, and how it's deployed in different ways. The last thing I'll say is that it is very significant to me that one of the first maps of the census in this country is a map of slavery. Oh, definitely. I think that is significant. One of my favorite maps from the next section, Industrialization and Its Discontents, is the first map of red and blue America. So it seems timely to ask you, you know, what does this map reveal about the American electoral system? Oh, that's a that's a good one. And boy, I have (laughs) I get a lot of calls about the moment that we're living in now. And I am have never felt so humbled <laughs> about um, uh, about how to guide people using the past about the future. You know, we live in very complicated times. I like this map. I discovered it about, um, I guess, four or five years ago. I'm certainly not the first one to write about it. But to me, it was really resonant because it was after the Civil War, one of a whole host of experiments in mapping data. The last map we talked about was a map uh, that harvested census data into visual form, and it was pathbreaking. This first map of the electoral returns was published in 1883, representing the 1880 presidential election. It's the first that I have ever found to harvest electoral data in cartographic form. And so what we're looking at, if you can imagine, is a red and blue map of America, one that goes beyond state by state and to try to go into a, a, a kind of more specific and granular profile of the American electorate. The reason it matters is that if you go back to that moment and look at reviews of the atlas in which this map was published, quite a few reviewers pay attention to this because it's something they hadn't seen before. And so what's significant is that for the first time, people were able to see beyond state by state. In the 1880s, you know, we're talking about a period where the North is fairly uniformly Republican. The South is very, fairly uniformly Democratic. This is the aftermath of the Civil War. That's true on a state level. And of course, states matter for the Electoral College. But what this map reveals is that if you go beyond that, lo and behold, you have large swaths of Pennsylvania that are Democratic. You have significant areas of eastern Tennessee that are Republican. And that tells people something about the tenuous nature of the party system. It tells people where parties have strength, but also weakness. And it also gives a far more complicated understanding um, of how people are responding electorally than what the state-by-state electoral maps show us. I think part of the reason it'll resonate with readers is that since 2000, we have been inundated with data-driven political maps, which are now made very, very easily because of software. Um, This is the earliest incarnation of that. 
Well, and I was thinking about your book as I was seeing on, on Facebook a, a map coming through or a pair of maps that were depicting what the balance of red and blue looks like in the United States if you do it by population versus by county, right? Yeah. And, and sort of how depicting it in a different way. So, um, you know, again, you've got maps on my mind. Definitely. <laughs> um, so I, I'd also like to talk about from this section, W.E.B. Du Bois's map of the seventh ward of Philadelphia. So talk a bit about this map and why you chose to include it. Well, there's been a lot of attention to Du Bois lately. Um, what I like about some of the attention is that it goes beyond the high notes of his career, his most iconic work, like the souls of black folk. And some of it really delves into his work as a sociologist. Uh, what I've shown you here is one of his early research efforts when he had a team of researchers under him at the University of Pennsylvania. And Du Bois was really struck by what he saw in Philadelphia. He saw a black population that seemed to be immobile. And what I mean by that is, while waves of immigrants seem to be rising in terms of social mobility, economic mobility, geographic mobility. African-Americans were quite literally ghettoized. And so what Du Bois did as an enterprising sociologist was to take cues from others working around the country, like um, Florence Kelly in Chicago, Charles Booth in London, was to use maps to harvest data. And so here he's looking at um, different social classes. And of course, that's fraught. There's quite a lot of uh, indications in his study that Du Bois had, uh, I guess, what we might call a fairly traditional understanding of what proper um, acceptable Black culture was. But beyond that, what's interesting to me is the way that he turns toward the map as both a tool of research but also a reflection of research. In other words, the map is something that he's going to use to figure out, are there clusters where Blacks are concentrated, right? Where certain classes of Blacks are concentrated? But then in the final study, he also reproduces the maps to let others interested in this problem see what he has come up with. And so it's a working map, if you will. It's a tool of data, a tool of research, and quite um, importantly, a tool of social reform. Well, in the next section, I was struck by a very different kind of map, and that was the 1939 map, A New Yorker's Ideas of the United States of America, which I, I've sort of seen versions of this that are more contemporary, sort of joke posters um, of this type. But I thought it was interesting to see one so early on. And and you write that it this map really tells us something about, quote, the mental maps that govern our sense of value and distance and situate us in the larger scheme of things. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that map. That one is such a joy. Um, and it's uh, some um, Americans are, are probably much more familiar with Saul Steinberg's um, map of uh, or the view of the world from Ninth Avenue, that iconic New Yorker cover from the early 1980s. Um, actually, I think it's earlier. Pardon me. I think it's from the 1970s. This is an early iteration of that. And what you're looking at is... Daniel Wallingford, um, who uh, drew a map that became a hit in the 1939 New York World's Fair. And it's a map that kind of looks like the United States, but what he's skewering as a young man from Indiana 
is the degree to which New Yorkers are self-important and they see the world refracted through New York and the five boroughs. And so if you can imagine an absolutely outsized Manhattan, which takes up a significant portion of the eastern half of the United States, an enormous Brooklyn, right? A very large Cape Cod, a huge Florida. But then moving west, nothing makes sense, both in terms of scale and placement. Kentucky butts up against states that shouldn't. You see South Dakota placed within North Dakota. Colorado borders Missouri. There's all kinds of knowing fictions and uh, winking kind of asides in the map to demonstrate that New Yorkers really see anything outside their sphere as um, in vague terms, in uh, completely inappropriate in terms of geography, um, very much through stereotypes so that everyone in Texas is either a rancher or an oilman. <laughs> Hollywood is really all that constitutes California, except for San Francisco. It goes on and on. So it's the mistakes, the intentional errors that are the joke. Um, and it takes off. It goes viral, if you will, at the World's Fair. And he reproduces it in several size as a souvenir. He had actually created one before this for Boston, because when he moved to Boston as a young man, he thought, uh, Bostonians were uh, as self-important, if you will, <laughs> um, as New Yorkers. To me, what's what's more enduring and more powerful is the way that this map is able to put into visual terms what we all experience. In other words, all of us see the world through our own lens. All of us see the world through the terms of where we are rooted at, at that time or our own experience. We're all parochial. And that to me is the larger beauty of this map. And I just, I marvel at the way he's able to take those mental cues and assumptions and stereotypes and visualize them. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, I do as well. It really does get at that, the mental map, the sort of moral geographies that we we all carry around with us that we have to in order to navigate the world in a way. Um, That's right. The shorthand, right? Right. We, we can't actually move around the world with a complete understanding of the geography in which we're moving in. We have to create these models, these shorthands that allow us to, to function intellectually, physically, you know, spatially. So I, I just, I, I agree. It's a really interesting way of depicting that and very original, I would imagine at the time. Yes, very much so. And I think if I can just add one thing, part of the joke of a map like this is that people understand what is the absolute geography? In other words, a map like this wouldn't have made sense two centuries earlier, right? Or even a century earlier. It's only once Americans have a vague familiarity with the outlines and the interior of their country that this kind of joke is funny. That's definitely true. You have to be, you have to have a basic geographic knowledge of the country to be in on that joke. Exactly. Definitely. That's exactly right. So when discussing the maps, that cover World War II and the post-war years. You talk a lot about the use of maps to facilitate strategic thinking, um, sort of turning certain ideas literally on their axis, I guess. Um, can you tell us about that a bit? Yes. And this is something that I've been working on for a long, long time. Um, Americans in the 1930s, uh, in part because of the experience of World War I, um, were generally isolationist. Part of that isolationism 
was reinforced by the maps that Americans used to see the world. The Mercator projection, which you may have heard of, uh, is a projection that was innovated in the 16th century. And it takes the sphere of the earth and unravels it onto a cylinder. And it was designed for navigation because direction is always true on that map. But what it sacrifices, which every map sacrifices something, is any kind of proportionality in the northern and southern latitudes. And so that's why you see extreme exaggerations that are a product of the Mercator projection. For instance, one thing that the Mercator projection does is to enlarge and exaggerate, if you will, the size of the Atlantic and the Pacific. And the reason I point this out is that the Mercator projection was the most common way Americans would encounter the world in the early 20th century. It was the map that you would see on a schoolroom wall or in an atlas or in a geography textbook or in a newspaper. And over and over, I found in my early research, by the 1930s, the Mercator projection was not just a representation of territory. It was seen as the territory itself. And what I mean by that is Americans had developed an inability to think nimbly and strategically outside of that projection. Now, that matters because World War II is in part, in large part, a war of aviation. And aviation transforms our understanding of distance because distance is measured in time, not in absolute space. And so the man I chose to focus on through two maps, one of which is the cover of the book, is an artist, Richard Eads Harrison, who was a very influential artist and map maker for time and fortune. And he rendered images of the world for Americans as war was inching closer that reminded them that oceans could be overcome through flight. And so he has one that he issues right as the United States Congress is debating Lend-Lease to show Americans that they are not distant but they are central to this conflict and that America can be approached from many angles. And so any ideas that we have that the Atlantic and the Pacific protect us from a European or an Asian war are fictions, he writes. Instead, you have to get back to the globe. And so his maps often tried to capture a global um, uh, kind of approach. Some of my friends say that his maps look like early iterations of Google Earth Because what they're designed to do is to give you a sense of a pilot flying over the horizon to return your sense of how geography is relational and how any area can be reached by any other area in light of flight. Right. Well, in in the book's final chronological section, you feature two very different kinds of maps um, in terms of how we, we think about movement and space. And and these track the spread of HIV and AIDS cases across the United States. And one of them focuses on rural Tennessee, and the other tracks um, over time the rising number of AIDS cases in the United States. Can you talk a bit about this powerful pair of maps? I'm glad you liked it because I wasn't sure. That felt a little bit risky to me um, because it was a four-page spread. (laughs) Um, And of course, right now we're in a very different position about understanding AIDS, but um, I'm of an age where I remember the utter terror uh, that that cataclysm um, 
wielded in American life and around the world. Um, in other words, I wanted to restore the feeling of the threat at that moment. And I uh, remember just my um, devastation and fear um, in that during that epidemic, um, the friends who were lost. And what I found was that that was also a moment where geographers and physicians, when they were trying to figure out the epidemiology of that plague, were using maps. And so the first one was came through Abraham Verghese's memoir, where he recounts living in Eastern Tennessee as a physician, moving around different hospitals in this rural area, and trying to make some connection about why all these men were getting sick. And so it's a use of a map to try to get to the root of a problem. It's an incredible story. He literally takes a map down from his son's wall, bedroom wall, and starts to track the movement of his patients, where they lived um, before they came home um, and became sick in Tennessee. The second one is by Peter Gould, who passed away a few years ago. And I loved it for two reasons. It's a series of maps of the United States that, as you said, show the spread of AIDS over time. So in one sense, it's a series map. I think it's the only series map in the whole book. But it also shows cutting edge geographic and mapping techniques that were used for public health. And Peter Gould, who I think was a professor at Penn State at the time, was outraged on behalf of his students and the public about the lack of sharing of information about the AIDS epidemic by public health agencies. And so he tried to, with his team, in a very, very early iteration of GIS and heat maps, harvest the data that he had to show how the disease spread across the decade of the 1980s. And so you can see it moves in, in, in different ways. Like you said in your um, prefatory comment, it's about migration, but it's migration that's aided by flight. And so you see the disease spreading out from nodes to rural areas um, in a kind of way that is a little bit different from our traditional understanding of migration. Well, and I, I really love also that the Tennessee map shows us, or, or at least the the way I read it, the way I read the map and what you write about it, is that map making can be a form of answering a question or of solving a mystery, that you have this rural physician trying to figure out what is going on. And he uses maps less as less to communicate, which is what throughout the book, we see many of them are, are, are trying to communicate certain things to certain audiences. It's less about communicating than about figuring, right? He's using that map to figure out a puzzle. And once we understand the map in terms of the question that he's asking of it, it makes so much sense. Um, and I just sort of imagine that, that moment where the map teaches him something about his patients, about this plague, as you say, um, that until that moment wasn't understood. That's right. And the famous example in this respect of a map as a tool of investigation is the John Snow map from the 1850s, where John Snow in London uses a map to document the cases of cholera in order to find the source of the outbreak. Um, which is the Broad Street Pump. It's, and so it, the discovery, the aha moment is to realize that it's a waterborne illness. 
And that's the contagion as opposed to, for instance, miasma, the idea that these germs were spreading through the air. Um, and similarly, Verghese is using a map as a kind of tool to go through his casebook, right? And to ask um, and to finally realize that these men were coming home to be with their families once they were diagnosed. They were coming home to be cared for. I mean, it's a very moving um, portrait of AIDS as uh, by a man who didn't really understand that it would hit a rural area as hard as it did. Um, and that revelation, too, is so moving to me to watch someone at the top of their game learning, right, and, and, and overcoming his own assumptions of how this disease operated. Definitely. Yeah, I, I felt the same. Yeah. Now, in your afterword, you actually include only one map, and that is a data visualization for autonomous vehicles. It's from 2018. So why did you decide to close with this map in particular? That's a great question. And I, as a historian, I really wrestled with the modern period. That last chapter, uh, you know, from the 1960s forward, that's a tough one. What do you include? What do you not include? I mean, I'm one of those historians who's more comfortable letting things stew for a while before I weigh in. And so I really didn't know how to properly end it. On what note? There were some obvious ones. The election of 2000 the attacks of September 11th, but I didn't really want to do that. And so I actually had a wonderful conversation with one of the giants in my field, and that's David Rumsey. David Rumsey is a map collector in San Francisco who has been on the cutting edge of distributing digital imagery um, of his collection for years. Uh, he's been a formative force in the study of maps. And David knew someone at a company called Deep Map. And he said, you might want to talk to this person because he had just been on a podcast with the COO of that company describing what will be the maps of the future. And I am not very tech savvy, but the way he described it was so interesting. And so I followed up and I went out and contacted someone from Deep Map. And what Deep Map is responsible for is creating the platforms of data that will govern self-driving cars. So if you can think of them as managing enormous clouds of information, and that information both guides the vehicles through space, but also simultaneously collects information that is then transmitted to the cloud to govern next vehicles. In other words, the data is the map. The data will never be rendered in three dimensions. What they've done for me here for this book is to create a visualization, something the engineers can use to check the car's progress or that a passenger can look at so they don't freak out <laughs> and they can see what the car sees. But of course, a car doesn't need a map. The car uses the bits of data. And that was utterly fascinating to me. It will never be static. It will never be fixed. And so in that respect, this image is unlike any other map in the book. It's not an artifact in the same way. It's an almost an organic living thing that is always changing. But if you think about it in another way, what I love about ending the book on this note is that this enterprise is like every other map in the book. It's about exploration and reconnaissance and movement and discovery. In other words, 
the same forces that drive this map are the same forces that drive the very first map in the book, the one that governed European exploration and the European discovery of the new world. So in a way, I was sort of punting. In other words, I didn't know how to end it. And so I sort of ended it in the future. Um, But in another way, the deep map experience and what I learned about it really reinforced some of the driving forces behind the entire book. Well, and and speaking of the forces behind the book, if readers took home only one thing from your book, what would you want it to be? Well, it would be the utter joy, (laughs) if I can just be um, sort of naive about it. I love looking at these artifacts. I love the way that when I share them with the public, we can discover new things together. I'm always discovering new things. Just yesterday, there was a um, uh, an obituary um, that the Times did. They've been doing these for a while about people who've been long overlooked, kind of getting their due. And this was about a man who was on the Harlem map, Snake Hips, <laughs> who innovated um, a, a dance in the 1920s that was then influential for um, subsequent artists, including Elvis Presley. Um, And so there's constant discovery. But the thing I want them to walk away with is the way that maps can become portals onto the past. They can remind us of the way in which people saw the world very, very differently than we did, that people in the past are not like you and me, but also some enduring things as well. One of the things I like to leave audiences with is that For most people, maps are useful to the degree that they're accurate. They govern how we get from A to B. They harvest data, like you were saying, in the maps of uh, red and blue America down to our own day. But for me, as a historian, it's the moment when a map becomes outdated that it becomes useful. In other words, it's when it becomes uh, fixed in the past that it actually can show us something that we might otherwise overlook. Well, thank you, Susan. It has been such a pleasure talking with you today. And I know we've gotten to cover a lot of territory, but I can't help but conclude by really urging our listeners, please go and buy or borrow this book (laughs) so that you can see these incredible maps for themselves. I mean, it really does. It really is something that needs to be looked at on your own. Um, So Dr. Shulton, before I let you go, what do you think your next project will be? Oh, my goodness. Um, I have a few irons in the fire. Um, As I said, I'm utterly compelled by those children's maps of the early 19th century, and I have found so many of them. I think they deserve a deeper inquiry on their own. Um, I'm also working on um, that artist who I told you about, Richard Eads Harrison, who was perhaps one of the most influential map makers of the 20th century, not a map maker, but an artist. Uh, what I mean is he wasn't formally trained as a map maker and he changed the way Americans saw the world around them as the country was deeply enmeshed in the international arena. So those are two things I'm really interested in. Um, I'm also interested in what it would look like to teach an entire course where maps are the substructure. So that's an ongoing sort of curiosity of mine. The fact that the ma- the book has done so well, it's in its third printing, is really encouraging to me. And it makes me realize that there's an appetite um, for me to share these materials and to encourage others to begin to do research uh, driven by maps. 
Well, thank you very much. And I will look forward to reading about all of those projects. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm Carrie Lane, a host of New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. You've been listening to my interview with Susan Shelton, author of the original new book, A History of America in 100 Maps.